Once again this evening, we'll return to Habakkuk. And I'll actually read the last verse of chapter 2, and then uh, through verse 16 of chapter 3, which is what we're going to cover tonight, and then we'll pray. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigenoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light uh, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. And the curtains in the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice and it lifted up its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Let us pray. Lord, as we take up to consider a, a big chunk of chapter 3 tonight, just pray that you would bless uh, our time in your word, that you would bring, uh, bring it forth with uh, clarity and meaning and, and power. Lord, be with us this evening and help our time together to be very, very fruitful, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, on page 10 is actually the last part of what we did not complete last week. And as we working our way down towards the bottom, really I was trying to draw our attention to two, three closing things there on page 3. And we see them in chapter uh, 2, verse 13, verse 14, and then verse 20. So let me read verse 13 for us. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and the nations weary themselves for nothing. 
here in this particular passage, it actually is dealing to some extent with the doctrine that many people run from. It's the doctrine of reprobation. That in the design of our great and good God, he has nonetheless purposed that a multitude that have been born into this world are ultimately destined for eternal punishment. For many of us, that's not hard to understand, but that's one of the doctrines that many people balk at. So strongly do they balk at it that years ago, when Banner of Truth put out a version of uh, A.W. Pink's book, um, The Sovereignty of God, the one chapter they removed from their version of the book was the chapter on reprobation that's in most of the other books. Because it's one of those ones that just rubs people the wrong way. Even though, if you believe in the omniscience of God, then you know it's true. When did God come to know that billions of people in history who are born into this world would die in unbelief? Did He come to know when it happened? Or did He always in His infinite, unchangeable knowledge, know it. Even the, what oft people will refer to as foreknowledge, right? So even, even those who acknowledge foreknowledge still must acknowledge this. In God's foreknowledge, billions of people whom He created because He had purposed the fall would ultimately have their eternal punishment in fire. They live, they walk, they experience, they end. And this is, again, one of these things. Now, the reason it's said here in the book of Habakkuk is, is to remind Habakkuk of this. Look, you're worried about how I'm using these Chaldean Babylonians to come in and judge. And you're worried about how I will allow these wicked people, even more wicked than the ones you've asked me to judge, how I will allow them to come, but what you're, you're standing here and you're looking at one or two things and you're saying it's not fair how prosperous they are at destroying all these other nations. And, 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 and God is basically saying to Habakkuk, you're not seeing it right. <laughs> if you step back, what you'll understand is this. All of these Chaldeans who are, who are living brutally, living selfishly, living abusively, they, they're not getting the world. They're not getting gains that, and everything that they might have and everything that they might experience, they're going to end up laying down and setting aside and ultimately they will be judged for all the deeds they've done in the body. So, so as Habakkuk is wondering, why are some of our wicked people who are oppressing getting away with it? And then God says, well, I'm going to bring even more wicked people against them. Well, why are they prospering in their wickedness? As he couldn't process that, God is just telling him, step back a little bit. And don't you understand that from beginning to end, whoever it is, I have marked out some that will be called by my name from among the nations that I will redeem unto myself from all these places. And there is yet a multitude of mankind who are going to be left in their sin to face the judgment of the wrath of God for deeds done in the body. And that's what he really, as we move on to, to uh, 
So uh, all, even loss and futility, is appointed by a sovereign God. We see point C there. There will come a time where this will be well known and God will be glorified. Look at verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So God is accomplishing his purpose even with regard to the wicked and unbelievers of the world. It is all ultimately going to result in his widespread glory. But again, we know this, don't we? All things he does. What is the, what is the highest priority? We, we might say, we, or we do say with regard to uh, little catechism questions, what is the chief end of man? We say to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We ought to also ask, what is the chief end of God? It would be to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. And uh, that which is what we see that give and take. Jesus says constantly, what is his purpose? To bring glory to the Father. What is he pleading in John 17? Glorify me again with the glory I had before the foundation of the earth. I glorify you by accomplishing all the works that you've given me to accomplish. God's zealousness, even jealousness for his own glory. His glory he will not give to another. We see that throughout. And so the ultimate design of all things, not, not only in the judgment that will be brought against the wicked, but also in the riches of his grace that are made known to us objects of mercy, as it says in Romans 9, will be always to the praise of his glory. And you see that beautiful phrase there, don't you? So often in Ephesians chapter 1 to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glorious grace. And then lastly, uh, from last week's lesson, to just bring that to an end, verse 20. As, as all these things are going, and as God is get, has poured out all of these warnings, and as Habakkuk seems to look around from time to time and, and not understand that nothing's gotten out of hand, <laughs> he thinks somehow there's, not, there's no justice Somehow things have gotten out of hand. This wicked nation is running rampant in the world. Somehow things have gotten out of hand. Verse 20 comes in and so wonderfully reminds him and hopefully all of us to some extent, ain't nothing out of hand. <laughs> and the way that it's often spoken of is, I mean, there's two elements to it in a sense. One, the Lord is in his holy temple. That is where his throne room is. That is, that is the place of, of sovereign judgment. That is the place uh, where he looks down upon all of the children of man. When you make a statement like that, it's like Habakkuk, nothing's out of hand. God hasn't abdicated his throne. He's not otherwise engaged. He is still in his holy temple. And in addition to that, the, the expression by adding it that it is in his holy temple also indicates that every action, every purpose, every judgment, every permission that God grants in the unfolding history and providence of men is according to his holiness. It is his holy temple. 
We remember it is in that holy temple and throne room. That vision of Isaiah was caught up there in Isaiah 6 as they around the throne said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so we understand this. God is sovereign. And when you understand that God is... Now, uh, uh, the fact that this is in the present tense, let it carry for you the sense that when Jesus would point back and say, does not the scripture say that God is... He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which he is the God of the living and not the dead. Listen, he is in his holy temple. Not that we today can look back on the days of Habakkuk and say, at that time he was. There is no he was in this case. It's he is in his holy temple. In the midst of economic downturn and worldwide chaos and fear and diseases and all whatever may come persecution in places against the church and so on we have this sure confidence god is in his holy temple every affliction that is being poured out upon us either by men or permitted by the hand of the enemy the enemy is often the agent of pestilence at the permission of God. But all of it has its purpose. So we could say God is in his holy temple. And we remember what it says in 2 Thessalonians. When he comes, he will repay those who have afflicted and bring deliverance and rest to those of us who are waiting for him and so in in a matter of that he kind of finishes that sentence those two things together god is in his holy temple let all the earth keep silence before him now that's not an in, that's not an instruction not to pray brothers and sisters we we are to pray we are to cry out to him at all times. What this is, is let us not complain. Let us not second guess. And it's hard to not second guess, isn't it? Come on, we know that. When, when some of the experiences we've faced, uh, uh, sometimes when we look at circumstances with, um, uh, with our parents or with our brothers and sisters or, or, or with our, our loved ones, our nieces and nephews, and we, we look at circumstances and we think of things that happen, we think, why, how, oh, and then there's a little part, and sometimes you've probably met people where bitterness has crept in because they felt like God should not have let this happen to me to them, to us. We need to sit back and remember this, hold on. I may not understand it. Indeed, maybe I do not understand it now. But God is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. That is like when Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. I put my hand over my mouth. I have spoken no more. And so, again, for us to question the psalmist's question, but we've got to, as we're trying to work it out and as we're seeking God for insight and wisdom, it's a, it can be a fine line between it crosses into complaint and judgment for what God is doing. And so let us be cautious 
in that respect. Now, what's beautiful as we move on to page 11 now, after God has given this, this wholesale correction, I see the wicked. I will deal with the wicked. They're not going to get away with it and gain it. Uh, all of these things are designed for my glory. Judgment will come against them. And know this, I'm absolutely in control of this. Everyone, which might even be you, Habakkuk, silence. Now, the nice thing about this is it's not a call for absolute silence. And I think that Habakkuk's next response is one that is very much acceptable to God because he abandons his sense of annoyance, his complaining, his doubting, his challenging, and he absolutely sets his own self, his own demands, his own understandings, his own uh, expectations aside. I call it a complete abnegation. He sets him, his ways, his thoughts aside and, and yields to God's. Now, again, when I say that, if we choose not to yield to God's will, does it stop it? No, God's will is happening anyway, isn't it? God's will in every moment, in every individual, uh, e even down to the, to the most insignificant bird, even down to the fallings of hairs on our head, every single detail of God's perfect will will happen. Therefore, for us not to yield to it in submissive reverence is really foolish. Because it's just going to stir up within us discontent and, and agitation and things that, that we have no power over. And actually, by, by in, when we yield and recognize He is in His sovereign temple, then whatever it is, sometimes I think we, we struggle to think, and we, we maybe put Paul on this big shelf of great faith and holiness because of all that he endured. He kept going after stoning. He kept going after beating. He kept going after all these things. Well, it, it wasn't that he was great. It was that he had, I would say, a basic understanding that God is great and that God is in control. And so when he would face a situation, he could say with confidence, this is what God purposed in my life. This is what God purposed. Now, to him, he did have the added benefit. Remember, it was told that when he was in uh, Damascus, how much he would suffer for the sake of the Lord. But listen, we're not told how much. He was told that it would be extensive, but we are told this. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We are told that beyond the persecution of men, we're told in this world you will have tribulation, trials. You know, this is the broad blanket word for all kinds of, all the kinds of things that can come upon us. And we can either face those, those circumstances with uh, a vexation in our spirit, or we can face them with a confidence of victory ahead. And what he does 
after hearing. So, so the silence is from complaining and judging God and telling him he's wrong and messed up. But the, the, the response of Habakkuk is a beautiful prayer. And more than a prayer, it's a, it's a sing-song prayer. It, it says here, according to the Shigianoth, which um, realistically, nobody's entirely sure what that means. Okay, some consider it to be a musical term, but think about it. Set this music, set this prayer to the Shigianoth. Shigianoth, Shigianoth. I mean, it's a pretty rhythmic word. And the best understanding that we do have of it, especially the context in which it's used, is that it is talking about passionate rhythmic music. Okay, and so you see that there. So this is a, a, a highly emotional, poetic form that's set to rapid changing rhythms is likely the meaning of it. But it's I've called it here a passionate prayer. Now listen, even if Shigianoth does not ultimately convey that it's passionate and emotional, read the rest of the prayer and you tell me if I've misread it. Okay, it is a passionate and emotional prayer. And uh, uh, really, he begins to open it up like this in verse 2. I say, we see a reverence and fear-inducing report. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. I've put it here in, in, in your notes here in the New English translation because this is the one, of the one of the few that actually put it in the same order as the Hebrew. So th that's how you're getting it this time. In the notes, Lord, I have heard the report concerning you or what you did. I am awed or I fear. See, I've also added my little translations in there, but the right order. Uh, uh, by what you accomplish. Okay, so what he's saying is this. He's aware of the scriptures. He's aware of what God did at the time of the Exodus. He's aware of how God brought them through in the book of Numbers. He's aware of the victory God brought them through the book of Joshua. He's aware of all of these astounding, powerful, miraculous things. And when he thinks on all that God did, he's a bit frightened <laughs> and he's a bit awed. Because listen, as God, because he's remembering this, well, how long were the children of Israel in Egypt? Over 400 years, about 430 years. We know that for, from history, hundreds of years, they were enslaved and oppressed so now Habakkuk is starting to process, and this is what often happens. He's starting to process beyond his looking around, and he's looking past that to what God has done. Well, did God not let Pharaoh and others get away with bad things for a long time? But when God was pleased, did he not bring it on their heads? Did he not bring it to an end? Yeah, 
And so as he begins to look back on those things, he's like, okay, as I think about and the kings that came out against them. Remember the patience of God, the kings that came out against them, that some of them who would not let them pass, he would send uh, Saul years later to destroy all of those people. And so now Habakkuk's able to say, you know what? He does see everything. And, and he's going to do what he feels is just. And I can trust him. I don't have to think anybody's going to actually get away with it. And I don't have to think that any of the righteous are getting worse than they deserve. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things that if, if, if you're astute, you can pick up in the book of Job. Even the relative righteousness of a man, what does he deserve? Does he deserve health? Does he deserve riches? Does he is, uh, uh, deserve a, 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 a healthy family? I mean, we, 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 things start to come into focus. And so as Habakkuk has suddenly stopped flapping his, his gums and stopped looking at, at just what's around him and started looking back beyond that to the power of God, the actions of God, all of a sudden, everything has changed. And he can see that uh, when he contemplates the things that have been written and reported concerning God, concerning His holiness, concerning His work, concerning His judgments, His provisions. I mean, prov providing water out of a rock. How often does this happen? I mean, not, out of, not of an, out of a well, not out of a spring, out of a rock. And then providing them with so much meat when they cribbed that they could just walk and walk and walk, and it was still higher than knee-deep dead quails everywhere, more than they could gather, more than they could eat. And so when, he, 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 so when we, we come to the end of verse 2, he says, In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. Now what he's doing is crying out to God and saying, You have at times... And, and I like this because now he's not saying, you have to do it on my timing. He's more yielded to God's timing. Not today, not now, but in the midst of years, revive it. He's still kind of pleading, let it, let it happen, you know, in the midst of, there's a sense of, in the midst of these years, while I'm around and while I'm seeing it, revive it. And in the midst of years, make it known. So I like that because he's wanting God to do two things. Revive his work that he might, through it, make himself known. We, we don't divide his name from his work. One of the things that I often encourage, and you can do this on your own, when you look back throughout the Old Testament, so many of the names of God that we see listed our references to his work. God, our righteousness. God, our healer. God, our provider. God, our deliverer. God, our help. So many of the, of the words for God 
the names for God are references to his deeds and our dependence on him. It's beautiful. And he wants that to be lifted up. Now, we see also woven in there a contrite cry. Because listen to what he says at the very end of chapter 3, verse 2. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. Now listen, I open it up a bit here. The idea of wrath there is in God's raging anger that he's going to come and bring upon them, remember mercy. Now, no demands, but, but there is this sense. When the, when the enemy comes against them, is the enemy going to only destroy and only take captive the wicked among them? No, the righteous may also be swept away with the wicked. And so he sets that, that plea out there. And you know what? The beautiful thing is you can have confidence when you lay those kind of pleas out there because our God is a merciful God. He is a compassionate God. So we can appeal to his nature. And, and, and really, the word here for mercy is, is more literally, it's not the common word for mercy. It's not chesed. This is the word, this is a word that's more compassion. Have compassion, have pity. You know, looking upon us. And again, just a few things. When it says, in wrath, remember mercy. Let us never forget that God is a God of wrath, the God of anger. Psalm 70, uh, 7, verse 11 gently says, I say gently because the ESV says, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. See, indignation, we don't use that word enough that we don't, we don't realize this is, this is intense anger. That's the meaning of the word, intense anger. We may often also, when we attach indignation to a word, we, we may make it a righteous anger. Okay, this word here doesn't necessarily mean righteous anger, but whenever you're referencing God's anger, brother, that's included. <laughs> God's anger, everything God does is righteous, yes? And so it, it, it is a righteous anger. Actually, the King James there says he is angry with the wicked all day long. Of course, I don't know why they invented throwing the wicked in there, uh, that's not in the original language. They just don't want you to think he might be angry with you. But uh, maybe it's a little healthy to think he may not be so pleased with you and I from time to time. It will not be an anger that would bring his wrath. His wrath in terms of final judgment has fully been borne by God. But let us not think that we can't grieve the Holy Spirit, that we can't grieve and offend God and that he might be significantly displeased to us. I think sometimes my, my mind gets stirred with the difficulty where Paul will speak about some people in such kind of sin where he says that he has already handed them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's really strong language. If that's not done because of the clear reality that what they have done temporally has offended and angered a holy God, not to the point, you know, and they may be given over to Satan for judgment so that they may be saved in the end. Saved as by fire, even, maybe. So, 
But God is righteous. God is angry. People don't like the thought of an angry God, but I'm sorry. The scriptures speak of God. Remember, it is Hebrews that says our God is a consuming fire. Uh, Nahum says this in chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord is jealous and avenging God. These are phrases we just don't use very often today because they put people off. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance. Now, by the time I've gotten there, I've used, said avenging, avenging, vengeance. All the same root, three times. You think the passage is making a point? It's also making a point that this vengeance is not for nothing. It is the result of his jealousy. He is not being given what is due him. And his wrath, his holiness, has been disregarded. On his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Psalm 94, verse 1 and following. I've talked about somebody maybe writing a song to this someday. O God, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Um, now, strangely, I think again the King James puts a peculiar spin on that one. They just um, miss it. The simple statement is God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. And what does that mean? Rise up, O Judge of the earth, and repay the proud what they deserve. O oh Lord, how long shall the, the, the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evil book doers boast. This is what we often call an imprecatory psalm. It is a psalm designed to declare judgment. Now, listen, I say this carefully. We generally are to pray for those who persecute us. We're to pray for everyone, uh, people in high places and others. We're to love our enemies and so some might say, well, why, what, why can't I, I want to pray this toward my neighbor. Well, these passages, it is, it is my understanding, are given so that we would have a clear grasp of the righteousness of God, the, the clarity and unshakableness of His judgment against the wicked. Part of our recognizing that we also deserve that same kind of wrath were it not for the grace of God and the, the three-time New Testament repetition of vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Do not repay evil for evil because vengeance is mine, says the Lord, over and over is to cause us to say, ah, all of these passages deeply embed within us the reality that vengeance is His. And wrath is a coming, but it's not from us. And so we, who Christ has averted wrath from, should be those who pray for others. The same, we who have received mercy, do we not show mercy to others? We who have been given much, are we not the most generous in giving to others? It ought be. I mean, and we see these things woven into the Sermon on the Mount, don't we? Further, um, again, some, some more strong statements there. Moving down to the bottom of page 11. Uh, the word mercy or compassion. Here, I've just given you another verse, verse where the same word is used and more rightly translated. 
as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That's the word. And so, it, you know, it, it's, a, it's a little bit more memorable, memorable phrase, in wrath, remember mercy. But it's really in intense anger, in your fierce anger and judgment, have compassion. Have compassion. And did not God always do that? If it was not for his compassion, if it was not for his mercy, he would have brought them to an end. But he always kept a remnant alive. And every judgment that came against them, even in the seasons of widespread rampant wickedness, he, he would send even the wicked remnant into judgment and wait to turn their hearts to him and then bring them back in, in a powerful demonstration. Over to page 12 if, with me, if you would. And then he really goes on to a, a historical panorama of God's power just in, in so many different ways. Uh, he speaks about, first of all, it says, um, and, and sometimes these places don't make clear sense to us, and it's extremely poetic, but in the various regions of, of Sinai, mountain range, and Mount Horeb, and Mount Paran, and Timon, these are all regions in the wilderness, uh, which together they speak of all the places and works that God, that God did in manifesting his power among them. And so I'll give you an example of that. First of all, Habakkuk 3, 3 and 4 says, God came from Timon and the Holy, Mount, uh, Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heaven and the earth was, was full of praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Now, Deuteronomy says it this way. Uh, 33 verse 2, he said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned upon Sire. Sire is also in the same region as Taman. Uh, he shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the 10,000 holy ones with flaming fire in his right hand. So when the scripture describes, for example, when God came down and manifest himself and, and spoke to them, giving them the law. You remember, the mountain was trembling, trumpets were bellowing, there was clouds, there was smoke, there was brightness, there was lightning, there was all of this ominous display. And what's amazing about it is in all of this that Moses himself was afraid to go up the mountain. The people were afraid to even stay he had, they had been told, don't come up the mountain or, or you will die. You must stay down. They weren't even satisfied at that point to stay down. They're like, we're still too close. We, we can't be a part of this. Uh, because, and now I, what, what I want you to see is, in those absolutely powerful, radiant displays of brightness and gloom and all these things woven together, it says, there he veiled his power. <laughs> what? You're saying that was just a, that wasn't even, that wasn't all of it? 
that was already too much for them. They were already, we're going to die. This is too much, we're going to die. That isn't even it. <laughs> the way that it's stated, described, and for this, instead of going back to Exodus 19, I figured, let's see how it's described in Hebrews 12. For you have not come uh, to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness, a gloom and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's pretty intense, isn't it? And so th th this is... Uh, this is what he's singing of. So now as he's trusting in God to accomplish his purpose, asking him to raise it up, he's remembering all the great things God has done. Now listen to what it says in Habakkuk 3, verse 5. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. Now the King James there says burning coals which is creative, um, but not what the word means. But I will be honest with you. The word doesn't necessarily mean plague either. Because of poetic parallelism, they put the phrase there. It actually means fire. Which in the context of, uh, of Hebrew parallelism with pestilence in the, in the first part, they're understanding the second part to be the fire is not a fire from heaven, but the fire or the fever that accompanies a pestilence. But again, what's important to note is this. Who is sovereign? I mean, we, we can talk about this all along. Who is sovereign over the storms? God. Who hurls the hail? Yeah, who sends the lightning bolt exactly where it strikes? Yeah, well, who is absolutely the power over every pestilence and plague? God! I mean, have we forgotten that? I fear that we might be, and I hope it's not the case, but we could be in a circumstance where uh, some believers could to some degree possibly be saying God is sovereign over all. But then practically, not so sure. We don't ever want to say we believe in God, in His power, in His sovereignty, and then uh, act like practical atheists, you know, practical um, Arminians. We, 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 want to, we want to be those who... What we do matches what we say. Now listen, so if I was in a lion's den, could God protect me? Yes, but if I was in a fiery furnace, could God protect me? Yes, but I do want to give you a little hint. 
Daniel didn't dance around and jump in the lion's den. <laughs> Nor did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, let's go sauna in the furnace. They did not. They were put there, all right? So we still want to be wise. We still want to be prudent. We still want to be cautious. We still want to be caring. But we can still, in the midst of caution, have confidence that God is in control. You know? And we must and should. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy, reminding the children of Israel concerning these things. I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall waste with hunger and devoured by plague. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by plague, and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them and the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Okay? This is what the enemies of Israel are going to experience as God brings them in to give them the land. But what it also helps us to recognize is what? When there's famine and hunger, who's in control? Yeah, when there is devouring plague and poisonous pestilence, who's in control? Even when beasts are attacking, who's in control? And, you know, in every, it's, it's wanting, it's making clear none of these things it's going to be, wow. What a great coincidence that we came in just after a plague hit them, and they were all weakened. Didn't that work out good for us? That's not what they should be concluding. Indeed, I would go so far as to say, let us never draw in, that any of our conclusions be the mere result of coincidence. Because is anything mere coincidence? No. We know that. In Numbers 14, it says this, uh, <laughs> a little scary in that. The men who uh, brought a bad report from the land died by plague from the Lord. Well, how, did it, how was it that they died of this plague upon giving the bad report and not a bunch of others? How is it they were the only ones who were susceptible? Uh, was not Caleb and Joshua with them? I mean, some might say, well... They contracted it while they were in spying. Well, was not Joshua and Caleb also there? I mean, this is a high percentage mortality plague. But who it takes and who it leaves is not accidental or incidental. It's God. Oh, that we get this. Uh, uh, so much more is there. We read Psalm 31. Uh, listen to the, the, even the expectation of God as he's declaring the judgment that will come in Jeremiah. And this is repeated many times in Jeremiah. I've given only an example of it. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by sword, by famine. By pestilence. Now go on with me to page 13, and you can see not only these, these are not random ways, I'm sending these things, and whoever the sword gets, they get, and whoever the pestilence gets, it gets. No, no, no. Who goes to what and how each go? Jeremiah 15, 2. When they ask, Where shall we go? You shall say to them, 
the Lord, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, those who are for the sword to the sword, those who are for famine to the famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. In other words, every outcome is what has been allotted. Isn't it right? So if we don't like what's allotted, remember who allots it and put the old hand over the mouth. And then, of course, you can see more of the powers described as he goes down there. The sun standing still, he remembers, even as Joshua came in and the sun stood still in the sky. Remember, not only did the sun stand still in the sky, but God threw huge stones from heaven and they fell, fell down only on the enemy, not on them. The, sa the, the same thing happened. Uh, hell fell all over, over, all over Egypt, but not in the land of Goshen. How? Is that possible? A, a, a wasting disease was poured out uh, that, that killed the livestock of Egyptians. Listen, who, which animal contracted the deathly disease depended on ownership? That seems weird, right? I mean, you would think, well, what genetic, where they're kept? No. Who owned them? made the difference. Is God able to make distinction? Is God able to accomplish exactly what He will? So we will try to walk with prudence and wisdom, but we will not walk with fear. We walk with confidence because our God is in control. And we know this, He comes down at the, at the, at the end here, and we see absolute abasement and utter trust. Look what He says in verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Right? So he, he as a, in his circumstance, and the brutal judgment that God has said that he's bringing on them, and to some degree Habakkuk doesn't know if it's going to sweep him away too. He is frightened. And he admits that. And yet, what does he say? Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who have invaded us. He's come to recognize, okay, God will bring his judgment upon them in his time. So, why am I wasting my time and energy fearing and thinking and doubting that God may be doing wrong or this or, 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 or God may be not seeing when today may have enough trouble of its own. And here I am focused on the, the judgment that needs to be meted out to these people and it may be that brutality and violence awaits me. But if it does... And if they bring it on me, and even if it sweeps me away, they're still going to answer. And it just adds to their judgment and answer. It says this um, in Psalm 119, verse 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. See, at that point, I want to note this. I, I, it doesn't say it super clearly, 
But this is what I like to believe. So I don't know if it's, it's this. That at this point, his biggest fear is not the Chaldeans or the king of the Chaldeans. But the God who is sending them against them. And that in God's wrath that is being sent against them, he might be swept away. That God, because again, why would we need to fear men when God is the one who, who swings the rod, as it says in Isaiah 10. Uh, Hebrews 12 says this, and this is following um, the earlier passage that I read where, where we've not come to uh, a rock that cannot be touched, that cannot be approached, a kingdom that cannot be uh, drawn near. Let us be grateful that we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When you read through this passage and it talks about the shaking and the, and the mountains being laid low and the rivers cutting through them, you see, you see global devastation being declared there. But we've got a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are citizens of another place, brothers and sisters. And I tell you, that citizenship is far better. But you know what? Even in our country, listen, and every country around the world, citizens rise up and they point at their prime minister or their president or whoever it may be, and they say, he blew it here, he did wrong there, he made mistake there. And many a time they may be right. But listen, the kingdom that we have, our king never does wrong. And his kingship is over all. And even now, with all that's going on in the world, you know, someone was saying today, we were set for an all-time high of a 3% growth in the economy in a single year, and now it looks like we're going to have a 6% contraction. This is unthinkable. Well, unthinkable to you, but the unthinkable happens all the time. But our kingdom cannot be shaken. Nothing takes God for surprise. For Samuel 3.8, I love the, the response. When Samuel told to Eli what was God's judgment on him and on his sons, it was a bad thing, you know. To a degree, when God told Abraham of his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. To a degree, when God told Noah of his judgment on the world and that he would build an ark. You know, there's got to be all of these things. It can't be easy. We look around and we should not for a moment think there are natural causes to what is going on. Because all that is in nature is at the hand of God. And it says this, look, um, Samuel, when he heard about it, that God is going to kill your sons and you also are going to die and the Ark of the Covenant is going to be taken away. He told him, and I, I love Eli's reply here, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And again, even if, he, even if he hadn't asked Samuel to let him do what seems good to him. Does Samuel have the ability to not let him do? 
Does, does Eli have the ability to not let him do? No. And so we can sit back at the end of every day, and we can sit back, you know, even in, in the most heartbreaking losses. And in our grief, we can say, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even as it says right there in Job. And as Job also says to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In Lamentations, it reminds of this. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? The King James there says good and evil, but watch out. Don't you dare accuse God of evil. But, but the phrase there is the idea of calamity, disaster, all circumstances. Yes, even in Job we see uh, uh, the, the one who actually went and killed Job's kids was who? Satan. Satan said, stretch out your hand over them and take all that he has. And God said to him, all that he has is in your hand. So Job understood, even when it's the enemy, even when it's wickedness at work, God's is the sovereign hand over every other hand. And so, you know, I, I, what's astounding is when I read this in this chapter that, that deals with deals with plagues and death and loss and power and people not understanding what's going on and why would this happen? How remarkably appropriate it is once for, again for us to reflect on those things, isn't it? And, and go back to that simple remembrance. He is God. He is the Lord. He does all things good. He does all things well. He does all things righteous. He does all things holy. He does all things for His glory. And all of them in some way serve for our good. That even at times through grief, through loss, through pain, through suffering, through sickness, through death, we glorify Him with a face, faith that's unshakable and fixed until the end. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we could again spend this time this evening, and I'm always astounded how you so perfectly work that many times the passages that we're dealing with are so pertinent to our lives and even the circumstances that we face. Lord, I just thank you that we have this confidence in this time, and I just pray for even our brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, the, uh, those who would, might cry out that they believe, help their unbelief. Um, Lord, that you would increase their faith. You would increase their hope and their confidence in you. You would increase their value for the life to come. And a, and a clear recognition of the purpose of the days allotted to us. That they are for your name, for your praise for your glory, for your service. Lord, we pray that we would run the race that you've set before us well, that we would fight the good fight of faith. Lord, be with us and strengthen us. And we know that as we fix our eyes upon you, 
with confidence in your sovereign will that you give us grace to endure. In Jesus' name we pray.